2: war was fought between the North and the South, and it ended in 1865. Most people have that much understanding of it. But in fact, it was far more complex than that. In places like Columbia County in the heart of Pennsylvania, the war was fought almost as bitterly between Republicans and Democrats as between Yankees and rebels, and it was fought there with guns as well as words. Further, The struggle continues today over what really happened in those four years in the Pennsylvania Mountains. We'll try to get to the bottom of the so-called Fishing Creek Confederacy with the book Fishing Creek Confederacy, a story of Civil War draft resistance and co-author Richard A. Sowers tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
0: Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or Blackberry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand
1: if you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from. The third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But not speaking for the university, nor the history department, nor the Brewster Building, or any other entity, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself. As always, it is a beautiful evening on campus. It's Wednesday, October 1. Baseball playoffs are underway. College football is underway. It's no longer beastly hot here in north carolina i can hear the marching band practicing outside the office window they've just wrapped up for the evening and it's just a really pleasant time of year it's a time of year that longtime civil war talk radio listeners will recall i would enthrall you with tales of the greenville stars girls youth soccer teams that my daughter's played on for many years uh well now the nest is empty uh I've gone back to playing and uh, playing in the local recreational soccer league, so if the show suddenly goes off the air uh, for weeks at a time, it just means that I'm somewhere hospital bound, because against all rationality, I'm trying to play with people many decades. My junior, if you've ever seen the Monty Python sketch of the Long John Silver impersonators soccer team, a bunch of... uh, uh, fig, motionless figures with one leg who sit around going, stand around going arrr while the other team goes past them. That's sort of what I look like out there. So, uh, well, we'll see how that goes. Back here in the office, it's another season of Civil War Talk Radio. More good programs coming up. We've got next week uh, Keith Hardison, Director of the North Carolina Historic Sites. After that, Brigadier General, retired, Jack Mountcastle, former uh, military historian with the United States Army and now leader of Battlefield Tours. Uh, Next week after that, October 22nd, Jamie Malinowski, the opinionator of the New York Times, will be with us to talk about Commander Will Cushing, daredevil hero of the Civil War. Then we've got Bill Still. He's The founder of East Carolina University's Maritime Studies program, author of Iron Afloat, about Confederate ironclads, and has written many other books of naval history since that one. In November, Caroline Janey is rejoining us to discuss her new book, Remembering the Civil War. On November 12th, Michael Stevenson has an interesting production. Uh, the Smithsonian Institute has published called Civil War in 3D, The Life and Death of the Soldier. You'll want to uh, look at that as well as hear about it. In November 19th, Leslie Gordon rejoins us. She has a forthcoming book on the 16th Connecticut Regiment and we'll learn about that unit. Then it'll be Thanksgiving. Uh, we'll have a few more shows before the end of the calendar year. Stephen Cushman will be with us for one of those and we'll keep you up to date on that. You can also follow our ever-growing schedule at www.impedimentsofwar.org The best of all websites because it's about this show. You can also donate there your hard-earned dollars to the show so we can buy the books that you hear about or buy the refreshments while reading the books or really anything at all Uh, make a car payment give it to a shiftless hobo on the street whatever I do with the money it's not tax deductible it's not a uh, a charity not a 501c3 but realistically it does help support the show and especially help support the website that tells you about the show so feel free to contribute there uh, Tonight, we look at uh, an obscure corner of the Civil War. We'll look at several things, actually. We have a prolific author joining us, but uh, the book I'm looking at right now in my hand is called The Fishing Creek Confederacy, a Story of Civil War Draft Resistance by Richard A. Sowers and Peter Tomasak. And uh, it is Richard A. Sowers, Dr. Sowers, who joins us here tonight. Uh, Rick, are you there? And we'll try again.
3: Yeah, hi Jerry. Oh, there we go. Hey, welcome
2: to. Very good. Welcome to the show.
3: Two-hour time delay.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So between each comment, we'll have a a space of two hours. Now we'll move things right along. So you're out west. Where uh, where where are you calling in from?
3: I'm calling in from Peyton, Colorado, which is about 15 miles east of Colorado Springs, where I'm the director of the Western Museum of Mining and Industry.
2: That's an interesting uh, position. Is is there anything Civil War related in the Western Museum of Mining and Industry?
3: No, but Colorado Springs was founded by um, Brigadier General William J. Palmer who during the war was colonel of the 15th Pennsylvania Cavalry and uh, after the war he came out here to Denver uh, started the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad uh, built it south to what is now Colorado Springs where there was a what he thought he was a Quaker, so he thought this dissolute little town of uh, Colorado um, City uh, wasn't good enough. It had brothels and saloons, and he wanted to find something better. So he started his own city. And uh, there's a nice equestrian statue of him standing um, in the middle of town, and he's buried in Evergreen Cemetery, uh, you know, Medal of Honor winner and all that kind of thing. So uh, it's an interesting, um, interesting community out here. Uh the GIR apparently at one time was very prominent out here because if you drive along one section of the city, all of a sudden you'll see Union Boulevard. And then behind that you have Hancock and Meade and Custer and Sheridan and Foote uh, and two or three other generals and admirals. And uh, so there's a little bit of a Civil War history out here.
2: Very good. The the uh now bef- before you went out to the Western Museum of Mining and Industry I'm glancing at your CV you were uh, a director of the Packwood House Museum in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania.
3: Yes, that's my my hometown.
2: Okay. The, well, I, I had a discussion uh, this week with students in a, a public history class and we are wrestling with the idea whether public history is itself a profession separate from history and th- th- I put out the idea of two career models. One is somebody who has a passion for a particular era. And if it's the Civil War, they might teach the Civil War in a high school or a college. They might write about it. They might reenact it. They might follow it. The public historian model is somebody who has a passion for teaching history and they might work at a historic house museum sure. from the 19th century, and then an industrial museum of the 20th century, and then uh, the, you know something in, in digital media for the.
3: Sure. Uh, uh, where h- where
2: do you fit on that?
3: Well, public historians are a little bit like academic historians, instead of teaching in structured classes, uh, the way I, and and I've taught. I've been an adjunct professor at four or five different universities during the course of my career, and I enjoy teaching, but I enjoy interacting with the public and even more and passing knowledge along and making sure that people hear what they need to hear. So I do my teaching with my staff, with my volunteers. Uh, I have a couple of interns this semester from uh, University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, who are doing some archival projects. I have another... Uh, young man who just graduated from u c c s with a master 's degree in history, and so he 's learning how to take an archival collection nobody 's ever looked at before and organizing r- write a finding aid for it so uh, we we do some of the same kind of things that academic historians do, except that we don 't give tests and we don't uh, <laughs> we, we don't uh, assign readings for the most part, and uh, we interact with the public. See, I have been a, a long-time Civil War reenactor and participated in a lot of battles. And to me, the best part about doing uh, Civil War living history was uh, being in camp and, and marching around and talking to the public so they understood a little bit better about what it was like back then.
2: It is, it's wonderful having an audience like that, which is there because they want to be there.
3: Ab- absolutely. You know, we get people coming into the mining museum uh, here we are beginning of October we've had visitors from all 50 states and 21 countries and it's it's uh, the, the, the mining museum I work at the Western Museum of Mining and Industry is a lot different from a lot of other mining museums because we also talk about the industrial revolution and how that impacted the mining industry and so we have almost everything we have on display still works we have a 34 ton coreless steam engine that will run show you how it worked we have a jackhammer, we, ha- we have uh, a line shaft system to show you how pulleys work, we have probably the only working stamp mill in North America that takes big rocks and crushes them down to dust to get the gold ore out of it and uh, we have a little bit of everything in between and, and uh, it's ca- it's almost kind of a living history museum because uh, we also have a couple of donkeys that uh, you know, were pack animals for the early prospectors and we talk about them and include them in our programs and it's really just a fun place to work and visit. No,
2: it it sounds uh, fascinating, and if I am ever in that part of the country, I'll definitely make a point to to stop and see where Yeah, we're we're first. right
3: across the north entrance to the Air Force Academy. Uh, Colorado Springs is a is a predominantly military community because you have uh, the U.S. Of course, you have the U.S. Air Force Academy out here. South of town is Fort Carson, which is home to the Fourth Infantry Division which has been in Iraq and still has a lot of soldiers in Afghanistan going back and forth. And then we have Peterson Air Force Base, which is a huge Air Force base, which now houses most of NORAD, which used to be under uh, Cheyenne Mountain here south of town. Uh, they're now called Northern Command, and most of their operations are at Peterson Air Force Base. And then we live out in the prairie in about 10 miles Kind of east of us is Schriever Air Force Base, which has space command that keeps track of all the stuff floating around space, around the Earth. And so there's a, a big military presence here in town.
2: Well, it, it sounds like a very interesting community, yeah. definitely one uh, oh, it is. Uh, worth, worth visiting. Um, let me say so we're going to take a break in just a couple minutes, but let me get started with a, uh, a curveball question for you. Sure. Uh A listener contacted me uh, a few months ago and had an interest in William Francis Bartlett, yep. uh, and he, he did some research and found you had written a biography of him and said, well, you know, get uh, Dr. Somers on the show. We want to hear about Bartlett. And as it turned out, uh, I got from your publisher your more recent book, which is what we'll talk about the rest of the evening, but uh, I don't want to leave our, our listener hanging. Uh, who was William Francis Bartlett?
3: Uh, he was um, a Massachusetts native, uh, 21 years old when the Civil War began. He was at Harvard. He was a kind of an indifferent student, really didn't know what he wanted to do in life. Um, Civil War began in spite of his um, southern leanings, um, conservative approach with slavery and all that kind of thing. He uh, joined a 3 months militia battalion, decided he liked soldiering, was... Um, promoted, became a captain in one of the companies of the so-called Harvard Regiment, the 20th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry. He survived the debacle at Ball's Bluff uh, unhurt, and then during the siege of Yorktown, he was uh, kneeling on one knee with a spyglass looking at the Confederate picket line when a bullet hit him in that knee. Uh, They had to take it off because it shattered the bone. Back in those days, you couldn't do anything to repair that kind of damage, put an artificial leg on him. He could have quit and stayed home, but he decided he wanted to stay in the war. So he became the colonel of the new 49th Massachusetts uh, Nine Month Regiment. They went to the Department of the Gulf, uh, where he was wounded in the, the first big assault in Port Hudson in May of 1863. He was hit in an arm and uh, sent back, knocked off his horse, and sent back home. He could have quit. He decided to come back. Uh, he became Colonel of the 57th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry. Uh, bullet ricocheted off his head during the Battle of the Wilderness and sent him home for just a little bit of time. Then he was promoted uh, to Brigadier General and given command of a brigade in the Ninth Corps. Uh, his was one of the brigades that went into the crater at Petersburg on July 30th, 1864, and. Michelle knocked his cork leg apart, and he was captured and spent time in Danville and and, uh, a prison in Richmond before he was exchanged. He went home. Uh, His father got got, got married. His father-in-law found him a job in the iron industry. Um, He never really was a good businessman because of the uncertain economic times. But he, at one point, he had gone south of Virginia and was working in an iron, managing an iron plant down there. Um, fathered six kids, uh, preached north-south unity long before it was fashionable, and died early in the 1870s because of the effects of all, all his wounds, and then uh, quickly became forgotten, except for a book that one of his brother officers put together some of his letters and published, and thereafter Bartlett's uh, original letters just disappeared. But uh, the reason I got involved with this book is the... Uh, My co-author, who was a retired professor uh, from the University of Wisconsin system, had grown up in Haverhill, Massachusetts, which was Bartlett's hometown, and always admired him and had been collecting stuff for decades. Uh, Knew he wasn't a a good history writer, so uh, he contacted Civil War News and asked Kay Jorgensen if she knew anybody who could help him, and she thought about me, and and that's how I got involved with the project. And I I filled in a lot of gaps uh, for Mr. Sable. And uh, published uh, a pretty good biography of a forgotten Civil War general.
2: Well, it, it sounds like a fascinating one, and we'll we'll listeners will want to look for that. But we're going to take a short break right now. We're talking today with Richard A. Sowers. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank
0: you for calling.
1: VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's PROKOPOWICZG at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Rick Sowers. He's the co-author of the Fishing Creek Confederacy, a story of Civil War draft resistance. Also the author of a biography of the uh, Union General, William Francis Bartlett, uh, among other things. We talked about that in our first segment. It sounds like Bartlett was not somebody you wanted to be standing next to in a battle.
3: Uh, No, and. The guy, the guy was a uh, very lightweight in terms of uh, uh, physical size. He he was very thin, frail to begin with. Mm.
2: And and he attracted lead apparently. Uh, but,
3: uh, more than most people, yes.
2: Yes. Now, the Fishing Creek Confederacy. Uh, right from the start, the name Confederacy implies that there are, there are Confederate sympathizers at and, and somewhere not. around Fishing Creek, uh, which is somewhere in Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah. Set the stage for us. Where does this take place, and how did you find out about it?
3: In Columbia County, uh, the county seat's Bloomsburg, which is the seat. Just last week, uh, ever since the Civil War, it's been the site of one of the largest of the county fairs in Pennsylvania. But Fishing Creek flows north to south. It enters the uh, main branch of the North Branch of the Susquehanna at Bloomsburg, and then uh, so Bloomsburg is probably about. An hour and a half, two hours, kind of north, northeast of Harrisburg, on the on the main branch of the Susquehanna River, and Fishing Creek Confederacy is kind of a misnomer. That's what the Republican opponents of the draft resistance called called it after the war. Uh, it has nothing to do with Confederate sympathizers. It was basically people who didn't like Abraham Lincoln and the way the war is being run.
2: Well, there are there are sort of two underlying threads, and and I won't spoil the ending. Uh, we'll talk about it later. But just for so the listeners, know that the, the the book presents, on the one hand, you may have the Fishing Creek Confederacy, a group of lawless uh, uh, anti-union brigands hiding out in the the mountains with a secret fort, or maybe you have a scenario of. Uh, the tyrant Abraham's minions, uh, soldiers invading peaceful farmers, going about their business. And it, it, it uh,
3: depends which point of view you want to take, and that's that's the whole problem with this with this story is because it was so blown out of proportion by both the Republicans and the Democrats, uh, with opposing newspapers in Bloomsburg, that uh, one really has to look at the take a hard look at the evidence, uh, really diligently use historical detection to try to figure out what actually happened
2: well let's start uh, at at the top uh, the the draft uh, is the subtitle the story of Civil War draft resistance how does the draft come to Columbia County when when does it get enforced and how do they do it
3: well you know there were a couple of different drafts um, after the um, failed Seven Days campaign before Richmond in 1862. Oh, a month, month and a half before that, the uh, looked like the Union Army was going to win the war. Burnside had taken the coast of North Carolina. Farragut had captured New Orleans. Uh, Grant uh, was moving down to Mississippi. Uh, most of um, Tennessee had been reoccupied. Uh, Union troops were near Charleston, South Carolina. McClellan was only 10 miles from Richmond. It looked like the war was going to be over, so the uh, North uh, the recruit suspended all recruit, volunteer recruiting and said, look, we have enough men. All of a sudden, bang, McClellan is defeated. The Confederates uh, start moving. Uh, there's some reverses in the Western Theater, and there's a panic, and so... Um, the Republican administration, the War Department decided to forego three-month or three-year enlistment quotas, and they would take troops for nine months. So there was a there was a draft, sort of a, uh, an informal draft across the North in the late summer of 1862, to entice men to enlist for nine months. And so, like in Pennsylvania, you had almost 50, you had 15 regiments of troops get recruited for nine months and then go home after Chancellorsville, uh, you had that going on across the north, and there really wasn't a whole lot of draft resistance to that. But then the north uh, passed, uh, in early 1863, the federal government passed a comprehensive draft law that stipulated who was eligible for the draft. Basically what they did, the, the uh, War Department divided up all of the northern states basically followed the lines of the congressional districts. And so Pennsylvania had like 24 or 25 draft districts, each one headed by a provost marshal from the provost marshal's department, which was created to help oversee this thing. And then um, people were sent out across the district to rap on people's doors, uh, take down names and ages and and occupations and things like that, to prepare for a lottery draft system where you would be drafted, you would report to the local draft office where you would be inspected by a surgeon uh, to determine if you were healthy enough. There were all sorts of uh, ways you could get out of it. Uh, The Democrats hated it. They called it the rich man's war because if you did not want to serve, you could pay $300 and hire a substitute who would be willing to go in your place and you could stay home. And so, it, it between that and the Emancipation Proclamation, which took place took effect on January first, eighteen sixty-three, and eventually allowed blacks also to be drafted as the war went on. Uh, it enraged a lot of conservative Democrats who were lukewarm at the beginning of the war. Remember, Lincoln's a, a minority president; he only won forty percent of the vote. You had a former Whig running, and you had two Democrats running, and they split the other 60% of the votes, so Lincoln was elected. And uh, a lot of Democrats supported the war at the beginning, but then when the Republican-controlled Congress began talking about abolition, uh, suspending the writ of habeas corpus, doing this, doing that, shutting down newspapers that were critical of the administration, you start to see a lot of rumbling behind the scenes, and you have a lot of Democratic editors starting to take pot shots at the administration, and this is what starts to put everything out of control, because when the draft starts to come, you have Democratic editors like uh, Levi Tate in Bloomsburg supposedly going out and talking to people and telling them, oh, this this draft is unconstitutional you don't have to report and so you have all sorts of things going on behind the scenes like that
2: so i mean the draft is you know controversial the, the both the north and south ad- adopt conscription sure
3: it's the and first the compet- time in american history the but no, nobody's the happy actually does it first mm-hmm. and, and nobody's nobody's happy because uh, a lot of the democratic getters are drawing comparison between the hessians that the uh, the British hire to fight for them during the Revolution, as the, the administration has to go out and force people into the army to fight against the Confederacy.
2: So we know about resistance um, in the South, and and obviously other places in the North. The uh, New York City's riot is New York most City, well-known example.
3: New York City's bloodbath after the Gettysburg campaign, with the lynchings of blacks, and having to send troops into preserve order is what has garnered the lion's share of draft resistance attention. The other thing that has is the, uh, the so-called, um, secret societies like the Knights of the Golden Circle and arguments back and forth between historians in books and in journal articles about whether this was an effective organization or whether it was something that was blown out of proportion by the Republicans, uh, to kind of, uh, over overall the democratic opposition
2: so that 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 relates to what we have going on here in in Columbia county as, as to what sure uh, what's really happening the so the draft is different from from more recent ones in American history. The first people have to be essentially registered by by somebody going out and counting who's in the neighborhood right right and then. Each district had the opportunity to not have anyone drafted if they supplied volunteers. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, if they supplied volunteers, and you have this, and the draft really, there's there's been a couple of decent books written about the draft, and one one of the issues with the draft, if even the even different townships within the same county, if they raised enough volunteers, they could be exempt from the draft. So what a lot of these richer counties and townships start doing is they start they start offering bounty money. For example, some of the wards in Philadelphia they put together enough money and they advertise across the state that if you come and be enlisted from our district, we'll pay you, you know, two hundred dollars and that exempts somebody from the neighborhood from going off to war. And so there's a battle across the north with different townships and counties offering different differing amounts of bounty money to attract people from other parts of the state or other parts of the country or even foreigners to come in and enlist you know from their district be credited to their district so that the 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 local boys don't have to be drafted
2: what did Columbia County pay bounties
3: they they did to a certain point but the evidence doesn't doesn't seem to be clear exactly how much was raised, but they they did actually go out and raise money to try to find people to enlist uh, from their districts, yes.
2: So when the, so the war is is announced, or the the draft is announced, Uh, people are coming into Columbia County now to register, to To record who's going, uh, who's eligible to fight.
3: Yeah, The provost marshal's department, which has a branch, you know, has uh, is set up in Bloomsburg uh, for that district, uh, which includes uh, parts of other counties as well um, around around Columbia County. Uh, The provost marshal will hire basically people. It's almost like people doing a census. They hire men to go out and knock on everybody's doors, record who's where, uh, how old they are, and if they have any physical defects or anything like that. And then when the federal government announces a draft, and there are several drafts announced during later 1863 and throughout 1864 into 1865, uh, the Army will examine its roles, determine how many men they need to fill up some of the ranks, and each state will receive a quota and the quotas will be further subdivided by military district, which is basically the congressional districts, and then it's up to the provost marshal in each district to have somebody draw the names that are written on slips of paper and put in a big round, almost uh, like a bingo thing, where somebody spins it around. They pull out the required number of names, and then they're published in the newspapers, and they have X number of days to report. If you don't report you're a deserter.
2: And that brings us to uh, Lieutenant James Robinson, Yes, uh, who goes into Columbia County with some some other men. Some friends of his. Some friends. Yes. And he's apparently looking for some of these people who haven't reported for the draft, so technically they're deserters now. They're
3: deserters. And one of the provisions that's in the draft that's inserted into the draft laws earlier in 1864 is that you as a citizen if you know somebody has deserted or hasn't reported to the draft you can arrest him make a citizens arrest drag him into the nearest provost marshals office and they will examine the roles and if he is indeed a deserter you get thirty dollars
2: sounds a, like a good deal
3: that's but a, that's a, that's a good deal now you know the, the whole crux of the problem with Columbia County is what was Robinson doing in Columbia County. Robinson was a discharged Union Civil War veteran from the Seventh Pennsylvania Reserves, and four or five of the guys that were with him were also discharged veterans. And they lived in across the border uh, from the eastern townships in, in uh, Luzerne County, so which was in the 12th congressional district. Uh, Columbia County is in the 13th congressional district. Um, and they crossed over that night, um, end of July, 1864, and uh, stopped at several houses looking for deserters.
2: It, it, but they're not alone. Uh, other people find out they're out there.
3: Well, absolutely. Uh, based on what later became the uh, military trials in Harrisburg that fall, it appears that there was some kind of a loose system of home guards who... Kept watch to keep all the men who hadn't reported safe from federal authorities.
2: So when when Robinson and his friends go in, the alarm goes out, and he, they are confronted by some of the locals who are also armed.
3: Yeah, and this is basically at midnight. They stop at Tommy Smith's home, and Tommy slips out the back door with his rifle. His wife opens the the. Uh, bedroom window, lets, or opens the door, lets the dogs loose, opens the bedroom window, yells and pulls out a trumpet and starts blowing it as a kind of an alarm that there are people in the neighborhood looking for deserters.
2: And what happens uh, to Lieutenant
3: Robinson? So after that, uh, Tommy Smith gets away. He meets two other guys. They're armed. Um, at some point within about a quarter of a mile from the Smith residence, on the one public road, these three guys who are all deserters encounter Lieutenant Robinson's party. Robinson yells, Halt! There's some shots fired. Um, the three guys run away. Robinson gets hit in the stomach and they take him uh, home uh, over at back in the Luzerne County. He dies of uh, infection in November of
2: 1864. So draft resistance rises from the level of angry. Newspaper editorials to shooting and killing federal officers, and
3: there there's there's been all sorts of problems in Pennsylvania. A lot of it occurred in the coal regions in Luzerne County and Carbon County, uh, places like that where anthracite coal is being mined uh, and sent to the Navy in a in during the Civil War. And the, the problem in the coal regions is the. Uh, Mine owners used the draft and draft resistance to bring in troops to control the miners uh, who were really getting the short stick. They were being worked long hours and doctor pay and all this kind of stuff. Uh, In other places, uh, depending on which county you're in, some places like my, my home, county of union county there's absolutely no draft resistance uh most of the people are republican oriented and they send troops to the war and, and there's no issues in other places along the southern border uh west of gettysburg and in places like fulton county uh people the workers out trying to enroll the draft potential draftees are being threatened uh they're being beat up their homes are being threatened their barns are being burned uh There are shots fired here and there. There's problems uh, in different parts of the state. And in the, oh, not very long before Robinson was shot, uh, Major Richard Dodge, who is the provost marshal in Pennsylvania, says, I'm getting worried. He tells uh, General Fry, who's the provost marshal in Washington, that we're having some issues here. Um, uh, We need to do something. The next major incident we need to treat it and we need to clamp down on what is going on and and make a show of force to overawe whatever happens to make an example of that county And, and columbia county just happens to be in the crosshairs because robinson is shot or it gets down to harrisburg pretty quickly that there's armed bands of draft resistors up in the wooded and mountain this northern part of the county they have a fort up a north mountain they've smuggled in guns from Canada they're prepared to fight us and so you know I, look, day- Rick
2: I'm, let me step in and interrupt you here. we're going to take a short okay. break and when we come back we're going to find out what is the real level of resistance is there a secret army in the woods or is Uncle Sam invading uh, uh, to attack we'll find out when okay. we come back on more Civil War Talk Radio
0: Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: Talking today with Richard A. Sowers, co author of The Fishing Creek Confederacy, a story of Civil War draft resistance. We've been talking about the draft in mid Pennsylvania during the Civil War and the uh, tension that arises from those who oppose the Lincoln administration and don't want to fight, especially don't want to fight to end slavery. on the one hand, and the government and its desire to recruit more men for the war on the other. uh, So that by 1864, we have this confrontation. A Union officer is killed while uh, hunting down deserters who have not reported for the draft. And we end up with uh, the Army moves in. Uh, Rick, tell us what happens.
3: Well, Major Dodd said he would make an example of uh, the next county where there was an uprising. So over the next few uh, couple of weeks after uh, Robinson was shot, the first a Union cavalry company and a section of an artillery battery showed up in the Bloomsburg Fairgrounds. And eventually the force was built up to around between 800 and 1,000 men. It included uh, some companies of the Veteran Reserve Corps who were wounded or sick, Union soldiers who could not... Uh, participate in, in marching and fighting, but they could do garrison duty behind the lines. You had uh, some of the 100 Days militia that had been called out to oppose the Confederate foray four, four into southern Pennsylvania that resulted in the burning of Chambersburg and things like that, and Major General Darius Couch, who was in command of the Department of Susquehanna, was sent to Bloomsburg. Uh, General George Cadwallader was sent up from the Department of, of, Pens- of Pennsylvania, headquarters in Philadelphia. Uh, The troops moved up into uh, the central and northern townships where they set up camp, and then uh, the cavalry and some of the infantry went out and arrested over 100 men, brought them together, interrogated them, sent uh, over 40 of them to Fort Mifflin, which is a prison fort, uh, basically where the Philadelphia airport is. It's still down there. Uh, And then eventually in the fall of 1863 or 1864, they put a number of these men on military trial in Harrisburg, which basically was patently illegal at that point, but the military wanted to get at what was going on, and so they they spent several weeks uh, scouring the county, talking to witnesses. Um, eventually what happened is some of them were found guilty, most of them were, about half of them were found guilty of obstruction of the draft and and thrown in prison. Um, One, a reverend who had made some insulting remarks and threatened to kill President Lincoln, was pardoned by President Lincoln when Governor Curtin and a number of other Pennsylvania officials interceded and said, look, this guy, you you know, is expressing his opinion. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh... The rest of them were all released after the war was over by President Johnson, mostly in May of 1865. And they went home as heroes uh, to the local community, men who had stood up to the tyrant Lincoln and uh, the way he prosecuted the war effort and and the radical Republicans. And to this day in Columbia County, these men are revered as heroes.
2: Now, clearly there was some level of resistance. You uh, described
3: the... Uh, There was no fort up in the mountain. There were no armed groups of men who were ready to oppose the army, although when the troops started arriving at the fairgrounds, uh, a number of local Democratic leaders gathered oh, between 100 and 125 men throughout the course of the day at the home uh, of one of the local farmers up near uh, near Fishing Creek uh, near the town of Benton. And they talked about what to do, and they actually formed four loose military companies, and were all set to go uh, defend uh, against the soldiers because rumors were swirling that the men, the soldiers, were going to come and shoot the men, and steal the women, and kill the kids, and burn the farms, and all this kind of thing, which was patently false. But uh, stories got started. Uh, then, better part of valor. The companies kind of melted away. When the troops started to move north, uh, most of the guys went home. Some of them did flee up into the mountains to hide, to wait till it was time. Uh, the troops went away. But th- there was some level of uh, resistance. I could say uh, Robinson uh, had to get try to get past people who were watching the roads and looking uh, for any excuse they could to warn the draft resistors that the troops were on the way. But in the end, there wasn't that much draft resistance. If you look at the list of the counties in Pennsylvania who had the most non-reporting men, Columbia County doesn't rank near the top.
2: Now, you, you said there is no fort up in the mountains. The, the Republican rumors are that there's a big you know, armed camp of hundreds yeah. of men. Yeah. Uh, but your, your co-author, uh, Peter Tomasek, yeah describes actually looking
3: yeah and, and uh, and we, looking for the and fort
2: did he find anything?
3: Pete and his grandson did find something up there now, back in the nineteen fifties I think it was it's it's in the book here, mm-hmm. a woman who grew up in Columbia County and became a fairly influential broadcaster newspaper person she wrote a memoir in which she included about her dad telling her about the fishing creek confederacy and described this two-story cabin where deserters could go and hide up in north mountain uh to escape federal troops and uh, and the troops never scaled north mountain it's it, it's there's no at that time there's practically no usable roads up there uh even still it's hard to get up on top of the mountain But uh, Pete used her book, uh, got some ideas, and went around and started knocking on cabin doors. There's a lot of summer cabins up there, or hunting cabins, and one of the doors he knocked on, the gentleman said, I've always heard the cabin's been around here, but I've never really had the urged to go out and look, and he said, I'm too old now, but he said, if you want to walk around my property, go look around. He said, go right ahead, and so down near one of the headwaters of one of the branches of Fishing Creek, Pete found about a a 20-foot section of a rough stone wall, um, and doing some metal detecting, found a lot of flathead nails that would have been in use in in the 19th century, and you can't conclude anything by that but yes there was a structure up here at one point and uh the lady uh the news person said it was about a 20 by 20 foot square foot you know two-story cabin where guys could uh hang out and avoid the draft uh the way the uh it was situated down in a little hollow near fresh water and it was extremely wooded there, and the way the chimney looked like it had been designed where the smoke would go, not straight up, but out the sides to avoid detection. Now, you can't you can't prove anything by that, Jerry, but mm-hmm. uh, circumstantial evidence would suggest that, yeah, there was a place up there where the guys could hide out, but it wasn't an arm fort with cannon or muskets or anything like that.
2: Well, throughout the 20th century though that that image persisted those the, the very name Fishing Creek Confederacy uh, that's, makes that's one a, think of this
3: yeah that's that's what the republican the name the Republicans gave to it uh, when the Pennsylvania gubernatorial election in 1872 featured former Union General John Hartrampt against his Democratic ch- challenger Charles Buckaloo. Buckaloo was from Bloomsburg. At the time, uh, in 1864, he was one of two federal senators in Pennsylvania, and he had nothing to do with the draft resistance. But in 1872, the Republicans waved the bloody shirt. They claimed that Buckaloo knew all about this and everything, and they made up stories that circulated all over Pennsylvania. And Buckaloo was forced on the defensive right away to try to explain, you know, what he was doing in 1864 you know for example he had uh, he was part of the commission the the senate committee on uh, I want to call it Indian affairs i can't remember what the name of it was but he and some of his fellow senators had gone to Canada in 1864 to talk to Canadian leaders about how they dealt with their native american tribes and on the way buckaloo fleetingly may have met some Confederate commissioners who were up there, but the Republicans blew this out of proportion and claimed that Buckaloo was up in Canada talking to Confederates about you know aiding and abetting the draft and all this other kind of thing and it was it was It was false but but uh, the the story got convoluted both from the Republican side and from the Democratic side because uh, Charles Brockway, who was a former lieutenant in the Union Army, uh, became owner and editor. Of, of the major Democratic paper of Bloomsburg after the war. In the late 1860s, he wrote a thirty-some part series in his newspaper and covered the events of they called it the military invasion of Columbia County, the military occupation of Columbia County. In our book we say the the better word, descriptive word is military intervention. It wasn't an invasion, it wasn't an occupation It was an intervention to deal with a perceived draft threat. And the the, uh, Democrats always uh, claimed that the Republicans invited the Army in, uh, wanted certain people arrested, and made an example of And and that's not quite true. The, The Army came in originally because of the word that Robinson had been shot. There were draft resistors. General Cadwallader came in. The troops scoured the county. He said, this is bull feathers. There's nothing of that going on. He went back to Philadelphia, but local Republican leaders came to the officers and said, look, we're really worried that once you guys leave, the Democrats are going to try to gain revenge on us uh, for the troops coming in. So here's a list of people we think ought to be arrested. So the local Republican leaders kind of subverted the whole reason for the troops coming in, and used it to get back at the Democrats and had people arrested who didn't need to be arrested.
2: So I mean, this really goes to the old saying that all all politics are, are personal. You betcha. Uh, all politics <laughs> are local, uh-huh. and uh, we're we're just at the very end of our time. Uh, leave with a, a thirty second answer. If all politics are personal, is it possible that what Lieutenant Robinson was really doing that night in arresting uh, so called deserters was trying to move a romantic rival out of his way?
3: Well, that's that's one of the that's one of the. Uh, stories that have floated around the county, and yes, there was a woman at at one of the houses who was visiting, but there's no concrete proof that that's what Robinson was after. The the idea, one of the ideas that Pete heard from an elderly county resident, he had always heard that Mary Lutz had two suitors. One was Lieutenant Robinson, one was uh, one one of the deserters, and so for Robinson coming into the county, possibly let's go arrest the opposition, get rid of the competition, and corner the girl. But there's 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 no concrete proof that that's the reason it happened. And like I say, the men who um, were arrested and then put in prison are still heroes in Columbia County to this day. And our book, the Columbia County Historical Society, will not carry the Fishing Creek Confederacy, because they said it goes against what has generally been believed in the county.
2: Interesting. And
3: it's it's a shame, because we tried to be as impartial as possible to show what happened, but there are people there to this day who want to believe a certain story, no matter how deeply our book is footnoted, they don't want to hear it. But we wrote a book that unless somebody comes up with documents that had been held Uh, in secret, that can prove things, Uh, we think our book's going to stand the test of time and be one of the examples of draft resistance in Pennsylvania during the Civil War.
2: Well, listeners, it will be your case to judge. The book is The Fishing Creek Confederacy, A Story of Civil War Draft Resistance. Our guest... Rick Sowers and Peter Tomasek are the co authors of the book. Uh, it tells the story of local controversy that people are still fighting about today. Uh, we would fight longer, Rick, but we're out of time. Thank you for being on the show. Well,
3: thank you. If you'd like to have me back again, I enjoyed the past hour, Jerry, and uh, would love to contribute if you'd like me to in the future.
2: Well, I sure appreciate that. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening. To Civil War Talk Radio.